This is an audio sermon recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ in Alma, Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth. We would love for you to worship with us at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1808 Highway 71 North in Alma, Arkansas. Good evening everybody who made it tonight. We have some folks traveling yet uh, singing still sounds beautiful and I know God is pleased that we're here. Um, we're continuing our study into Revelation tonight. And uh, we'll start by, I want to remind you that the book of Revelation is a form of literature called apocalyptic. And Revelation is called, by another name, the apocalypse. It's a type of literature known uh, for its symbolism. Uh, There is a fellow named Richard Draper who says the following about apocalyptic literature. He says, John did not choose the form of the vision. God did. The form is now called apocalyptic. This genre of literature received its name from the first uh, first word of the book of Revelation, apocalypsis. And the word apocalypse comes from the Greek, which means revelation or disclosure. Most apocalypses contain a vision or dream had by the writer of the text, and one characteristic of this literature is its use of symbolism, which the reader is expected to interpret. The point of the whole is that God is in control of everything that goes on. He's foreseen everything that's going to happen, and he's prepared a way of escape for his people. So I want to examine, first of all, as we get ready to look, start chapter 1, I want to look at the setting in which Revelation was penned. We start out on the island of Patmos, and the book of Revelation explicitly states it was written in the Isle of Patmos, and it's the only book in the New Testament where the location is given in this way. According to Pliny and Tacitus, the Romans often sent their prisoners to islands, and it's not clear if John was actually imprisoned on Patmos or if he was actually banished there to live, and Patmos itself is seldom mentioned by ancient authors in their books. Archaeologists believe that the early inhabitants were called the Karens, and uh, the name Patmos is believed to derive from the word Latmos, which is the name of a mountain that's across the, the ocean there on Asia Minor, where the goddess Diana, or Artemis, was ardently worshipped. She was considered the patroness of this island. So when you sent someone to the Isle of Patmos, you were sending them to submit to the rule and realm of the pagan goddess Diana. Now, John, who is the author of Revelation, he was being held as a prisoner here by Rome because he persisted in preaching about Jesus. Now, according to tradition that was preserved by Irenaeus, Eusebius, and Jerome, who were considered early church fathers, John was exiled in AD 95 during the reign of Emperor Domitian, and his exile ended upon the accession of Nerva in 96 AD. And one tradition states that John received his vision of revelation from heaven verbatim, and he dictated it to his assistant, Procurus. Now, you may remember Procurus. He's mentioned in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, and is considered to be one of the seven original deacons. John was old at the time of his vision and close to the end of his life. He was probably sent to Patmos somewhere between 68 and 95 A.D., If that earlier date is true, then that means he would have been exiled there by the Roman Emperor Nero. Now, under this view, John was made a political prisoner after the executions of both Peter and Paul. 
because you know, after their execution didn't stop the evangelization in the empire, uh, they wanted to get rid of John. John, in that earlier view, he would have been in his 60s at that time. Now, if the later date is true, he would have been exiled by the Roman emperor Domitian, who was reportedly angry at the fact that John didn't die when he was dipped into some boiling oil. Now, since John was a contemporary of Jesus and would have been around 92 years old by this time, he was likely the only apostle to live into old age. The rest of the apostles had been martyred decades earlier. One commentator states this, it was as if God supernaturally preserved John to bear the record of revelation. And indeed, it does appear that that is the case regardless of how old John was when he wrote it. You may remember Jesus' words to Peter saying, what is it to you if it is my will that he tarries until I come? My personal opinion is that the latter date is the correct one. Now, Revelation also happens to be one of the last books that was officially recognized and accepted into Scripture and added to what we refer to as the Bible or the canon of Scripture. And I'd like to briefly examine this idea of the canon so that we're clear on it. The books of the Bible were officially recognized in a certain way. The term that's used to describe how these books were accepted is known as the canon of Scripture. The word canon in the Greek is a straight rod in the widest sense, and it's, it's a rule in the widest sense, and especially uh, as it's used in the phrases the rule of the church, the rule of faith, the rule of truth. Canon is a term that refers to the rule of law that's used to decide whether or not a book measures up to a standard. And in the case of the Bible, the canon refers to which books met the standard to be considered the inspired word of God. Now, the first direct application that we have historically of the term canon being used is found in the verses of Ampha, <coughs> excuse me, Amphiphilochius from 380 A.D. And those writings... Dict, you know, they tell us what the rules were that they looked at. There were three key principles. The writing had to take place through a recognized prophet, apostle, or someone who was associated with them. Their writing could not contradict previous scripture, and their writings had to be widely accepted by the church and its leaders as having been inspired. Now, by Jesus' lifetime, all of the Old Testament had already been written and was accepted by the Jewish community. In the first century, the Old Testament was comprised of a list of 22, sometimes 24 books that included the same content as our Bibles, but our Bible breaks it up into 39 books. These writings were further divided into the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. The New Testament includes 27 books that have been recognized as part of the canon of Scripture, and almost all of these books were noted as authoritative in the church from the earliest times. That would be the mid first century to the early second century. So the Bible's old, traces all the way back to the very beginning. And we're talking specifically the New Testament. It's not a recent creation. By the middle of the third century, the full list of inspired writings was completely determined. It was during this time that the first existing New Testaments began to appear. In total, the church has affirmed 66 canonical books of the Bible. I point that out because the Catholic Church recognizes some additional books called the Apocrypha that are not considered by the, the rest of uh, Christendom as canonical. In each case, authorship was always connected to an apostle or an associate of, of an apostle or a family member of Jesus. 
and each was widely accepted within the early church. Now, it's important to note that Scripture was not made canonical by the act of any council. You'll hear about these councils that did this and that in the early church. What the councils did was they gave sanction to the results of long and careful investigations into what books were really of divine authority and expressed the universally accepted decisions of the church. Now remember, much of the, the Bible was transmitted orally, came directly from Jesus and the apostles, and it went to congregations. Many times the epistles were letters, and it was, they were passed around, they were shared, and they were communicated orally. And uh, as they were written down, they had to be examined for accuracy. And all that these councils were doing was, think of it like an eldership, who they go and they closely examine the past teachings of an evangelist before they bring that evangelist into their church as a trusted teacher. That's the same thing that happened with these councils. They didn't say that we approve of these books because we like what they say. They said we approve of these books because they affirm what we have already heard from Jesus and the apostles. <clears throat> now, if that's the case, what took so long for Revelation to be accepted in the Bible? The story of the book of Revelation is not what one would normally expect. You know, you had certain books that were not accepted right away. They, they started out with kind of a lukewarm reception and then it built over time. But Revelation initially had a very strong support and then centuries later, it came under attack. Um, so the main points is early on, people liked the book. Later on, there were objections. Uh, these objections were not driven by historical matters, however, and they were eventually resolved. That's a whole study that you can get into. We're not going to do that tonight, but I just want to note that ultimately, Revelation was admitted into the Bible as inspired Scripture, primarily because it did not contradict Scripture. It supported and, and coincided with, in particular, the Old Testament, the book of Daniel and Isaiah and others. And the church fathers, you know, those people who were members of the church, who were contemporaries of the actual living apostles, it was, uh, it, it was seen as something that they affirmed. So we trusted that they had been close enough to the source that we could trust it. And furthermore, they all believed that it was the apostle John, the son of Zebedee, John the apostle, who wrote it. So just bear in mind that this Bible that we have, it was written early, it was determined early, and it's been unchanged since those times. We can confidently accept the Bible today as God's word, and that includes Revelation, despite the fact that you're going to come across people who may argue that uh, it's not worthy to be in the Bible. Now, the primary reason we can accept the Bible is because we understand it to be the inspired word of God. We're told in 2 Timothy 3.16 that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that Greek word that's translated inspiration is theopnestos, which means divinely breathed in or given by inspiration of God. Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum correctly states that based on this definition, inspiration is really outspiration. God outbreathed the scriptures through human writers who essentially inhaled the word of God as God exhaled it. Peter in 2 Peter 1 verses 20 through 21 says, Knowing this, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What does Peter mean here by holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost? Well, the Greek word for moved 
is the same word used in Acts 27 verses 15 and 17 to refer to a ship being borne along by the wind. And when Peter says that the prophecy came not by the will of man, he means that God oversaw the inspiration process to the extent that everything God wanted written down was written. And no human addition, deletion, or error crept in. So with this in mind, we can conclude that every author of the Bible, whether it be prophets, compilers, teachers, or researchers, they were born along by the Holy Spirit of God as they wrote. God inspired them. He outbreathed his desired message into the men who did the writing, just as the wind catches the sail of a ship. The end result is that every single word on the pages of your Bible matters. Now, God gave the message, but what you're also going to see in the different books is you're going to see the integrity of the personality, education, and grammatical tendencies of the author reflected there. And from that, we can gather who authors are. That is primarily why we believe and know that John is the author of Revelation, because we can match his tendencies when he wrote the Gospel of John, and we can see the similarities are there. There's strong proofs for that. I'll just say that, keep this analogy in mind, every sailboat is driven by the same wind, but every boat is unique. So too are the inspired books of the Bible. Now, I just want to run through a quick list of some evidences for inspiration, and this is, this is really miraculous when you think about it. Although 66 books of Scripture were written in three languages over a period of 1,600 years, in at least six countries spanning three continents, by about 40 men in at least 11 different occupations, the 66 books of the Bible constitute a fully integrated book that contains no contradiction and is consistent in the development of its central theme, which is all of history is and has been moving toward Jesus Christ for the glory of God. No other holy book declares how the universe came into existence, identifies sin as a condition of the Holy Spirit, proclaims the deliverance from sin as a work of God, or that one's favor with God is predicated solely on faith in God and not on good or penitential deeds. Scripture agrees with and never contradicts any proven scientific fact on which it touches. On matters of science that are unobserved or unobservable, like the origin of the universe and living things, Scripture offers the most plausible explanation based on the scientific evidence we have. Scripture has profound, uh, profoundly changed multitudes of individuals' lives for good. It has influenced nations of the world for good. Scripture is a literary masterpiece in a class all its own, which is precisely what you'd expect of a work of God, but not what you'd expect of a work that spanned 1,600 years and multiple different authors. Scripture has declared numerous prophecies which have been fulfilled in history to the minutest detail, including blueprints of history, the fates of nations and cities, the preservation of the Jew against all odds, and Jesus' life, crucifixion, and resurrection. Scripture is God's complete and final revelation to man until the Messiah returns. Revelation 22, verses 18 through 19. 
For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Now these verses appear at the end of Revelation and I've often seen these verses in books labeled the most misunderstood verses of the Bible because it's said they're taken out of context that they apply only to the book of Revelation. And it is true that they apply to the book of Revelation. They're found in the book of Revelation. But also bear in mind that since Revelation alludes to Old Testament prophecies all the way from Genesis to Malachi and to the core teachings and prophecies of the New Testament from Matthew to Jude, and it marries the whole Bible together, that it follows that this warning against adding to or taking away from the book also can apply to the rest of Scripture. We are not to take away from or add to anything in the Bible. John's warnings, therefore, seal up Scripture as the final revelation of God to man until the King of kings and Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, returns. That's why revelation matters. It's God's final chapter. It's how the book ends. And he gave it to us because he wants us to know these things. Now, I mentioned before that the Bible is inerrant in all its forms, or its original form, I mean. <clears throat> now, by that, I'm referring to what we call the original autographs of Scripture. That's just another way of saying the original copies in the Hebrew and the Greek as penned by the original authors. Inerrancy means without error. And inerrancy can only be attributed to those original autographs because it was only the original autographs that were inspired. The Bible contains no error on any matter, despite what some may say. And if any supposed error has ever been identified, it is one of transcription, one of copying, one of translation. The error is not in the original autographs, which is why we so often go back to original Greek and Hebrew when we talk about things and we've shown time and again how a Hebrew word in particular has nuance and meaning that the English language simply fails to capture in one word. So Revelation as it's transcribed into English it may appear confusing at times but rest assured it is accurate. We're going to be going through great detail as we do this study to address some of these things. But I just want to make the point, and the rest of the lesson I'm going to focus on the following. There's a multitude of evidence, archaeological and scientific, that proves that the Bible and thereby revelation is factual and accurate. I'm just going to go through some of these tonight. <clears throat> First, we have the Rosetta Stone. In 1798, Napoleon invaded Egypt where his researchers found this Rosetta Stone. It proved to be invaluable because what it had on it was three languages. Greek was one. They knew the Greek. Ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics was another, and Demotic was a, was a third. They were able, based on this one stone, to learn how to translate Egyptian hieroglyphics and thereby start the entire study of Egyptology and thereby also provide historical proofs for much of what we see in the Bible. Then you have the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, some shepherds stumbled upon a cave in a rugged, arid area on the western side of the Dead Sea. Over the next few years, other similar remote caves were found. And what did these caves contain? Well, there were over 800 fragmentary documents 
mainly consisting of Hebrew writings on leather with a few on parchment. And this included fragments of 190 biblical scrolls. Now, most of these are small. They contain no more than one-tenth of a book. But there was actually a complete Isaiah scroll present. And almost every Old Testament book is present in some way. And there are also other writings by the community that are in those caves. And it appears that the earliest scrolls date to about the mid-3rd century B.C. And most of the 1st or 2nd centuries B.C. That's older than some of the translations that we were using to create the, the versions of the Bible that we have today. Now the interesting thing, perhaps the greatest contribution to this find, is our understanding of the transmission of the biblical text. What we were able to see is that the differences between these much older documents and what we have in our Bible are very minimal. And the few things that are there, they don't affect the meaning of the text at all. So this is just incredible that you have these ancient things that are found that are verifying the validity of the Bible. Next, you have the Tel Dan inscription. In 1993, excavators at Tel Dan uncovered an inscription with the word B-Y-T-D-W-D on it, and they convincingly argued that that word means House of David and dates to the 9th century B.C. That's old. The inscription had been sealed by a later Assyrian destruction that was dated to around 733 to 722 B.C. Now, there was a, an ash layer covering these things. If you don't know, an ash layer is solid gold for an archaeologist because it tells them that everything underneath that cannot be older. You know, in other dirt, you could have upheavals, you could have people digging, and you, you don't have any marker to tell where it's been tampered with, but that ash layer effectively seals that off. So when they found this, they know that... Um, the pottery directly beneath that destruction level dates to the 9th and 8th centuries B.C. And it's talking about the house of David. Now prior to them finding this inscription, people didn't even believe King David was real. They commonly said he was a fictional king. But now archaeology affirms the truth of the Bible. Next you have the Ketef Hinnom Scrolls. In 1979, Israeli archaeologist Gabriel Barkay was excavating a burial cave at Ketef Hinnom, just southwest of Jerusalem. Now, this tomb was typical of the late Iron Age, which was the late 7th century B.C. It was a burial structure. Now, the typical Judean burial structure at this time uh, was in, it was usually a rock-hewn tomb, like what we know Jesus was buried in. And when a person died... He was placed on a burial bench inside this tomb where the body was allowed to decay. And he was placed there along with vases, jewelry, trinkets, things that were his or were important. And when that body fully decayed, then they took the bones of the person, they placed them in a box that was underneath the burial bench. Well, this team found that box and they excavated it and they came upon two small silver scrolls. And since the scrolls were metal, uh, they had a difficult time unrolling them, as you can imagine, and deciphering their text. They began with the larger of the two scrolls, which took three years. Can you imagine spending three years unrolling a scroll? But when they got it undone, it measured about, uh, let's see, three inches. And when they finished, they noticed there was very delicate writing written on that silver. And the very first word they found was Yahweh which is a, a name for God. After much work, they were able to read the entire scroll and it happened to contain the entire priestly benediction from Numbers chapter six. 
Now these two scrolls are relatively unknown, but they can be seen today in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. They are the earliest known citations of biblical texts in Hebrew. They predate even the earliest Dead Sea Scrolls by nearly 400 years. We're going way back in time showing proof that the Bible is accurate here, all the way back to the late 7th century BC. Next you have the Moabite stone. In 1868, a missionary in Jerusalem found a stone tablet for sale that appeared to be from ancient times. So what do you do when you find a priceless, priceless ancient artifact? Why, well, you break it into pieces so you can sell the pieces for more money than the whole, right? That's what they did. Unfortunately, a copy of the tablet was made prior to the break, and this copy is in the Louvre in France today. On the tablet is a text written in Moabite dating to the 9th century B.C., back during the time of King David. Uh, well around that time. It was perhaps a victory stone that was erected by King Mesha to commemorate his military achievements. And the text begins, I am Mesha, son of Kamosh, king of Moab. Again, people didn't even believe that Moab existed as a nation. Here you have it. Prominent in the text is the king's version of a war fought with Israel in 850 BC. This is interesting because we're told that that scroll tells us that uh, Moab rebelled against King Jehoram, who was the son of the wicked King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel. And soon a, this was soon after the death of Ahab. Now, of particular interest is that the Bible records this very same incident in Second uh, Kings chapter 3. But they're two different versions. The Moabite tablet here, or stone, tells the story of the victories of the Moabite king against the Israelites, while the story in Kings, the book of Kings, tells about the Israel, Israelites' successful counterattacks. Isn't that great? You get two sides of the story there, and we prove another text of the Bible. Next, we have the Lachish letters. In the 1930s, J.L. Starkey excavated the side of Lachish. He discovered a layer of debris heavily destroyed and burned with fire at the hands of the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 589 to 588 BC. Starkey unearthed 18 ostraca, or inscriptions, written in ink on pottery shards. Now these are generally dated to immediately prior to the destruction of Lachish. And the interesting thing is what's written on there. It's, a, it's correspondence between these two military leaders. And Lachish and another town called Azekah were basically... Prior to the Babylonian captivity, they were in this valley, one on the other side. And Lachish would watch for these signal fires from uh, Azekah, however you say it. And they knew that if those signal fires went out, that the Babylonians were then going to come and attack them. And so this is saying, I can still see the fires of Azekah as long as Azekah's fires keep burning. The king of Lachish knew that the city still stood. And then there's the, the uh, fascinating story of Hezekiah's Tunnel, the most dependable water source for the city of Jerusalem, uh, is the Gihon Spring. However, it's located outside of the city walls. So obviously, if there was an attack, this was problematic. So what did they do? Well, Hezekiah took this shaft that was probably originally built by the Jebusites, which, if you remember, they occupied the city before the children of Israel occupied the land of Canaan and after for a while, because uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, did not obey God and drive them out. But anyway, they had started this likely, and so Hezekiah probably took what they started and continued it, and he built this long tunnel, and um, 
basically it was cut by two teams digging toward each other from opposite directions. And you can see on that picture on the right, it zigzags through the city because of differences in terrain. And uh, this Siloam inscription, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, it tells what it was like when the two got close enough. They could hear the pickaxes and they could hear the voices and it commemorated the date and the place where they broke through and those two sides met in this tunnel. And this tunnel was recently discovered and now it's open and you can go take tours of it in Jerusalem. But before, nobody believed necessarily because they hadn't found proof that it existed. Now in addition to archaeology, science also shows the Bible to be accurate. I've got some interesting things here to share with you. And first of all, let's talk about dinosaurs. Now, the word dinosaur was introduced to the English Dictionary in 1842 by Richard Owen. So you're not going to find the word dinosaur in the Bible any more than you're going to find the word email or internet. However, the Bible does appear to describe several types of dinosaurs. For example, Job chapter 40, verses 15 through 19, we read, Look now at the behemoth. His strength is in his hips. And his power is in his stomach muscles. He moves his tail like a cedar. His bones are like beams of bronze. His ribs like bars of iron. Maybe that was an aptosaurus. Isaiah 30 verse 6 mentions a fiery flying serpent. Some believe this is merely symbolism, but others question maybe that was a pterodactyl. And then there's the famous reptile in the sea, Leviathan, mentioned in Job 41 and Isaiah 27 verse 1. Perhaps that was a mosasaur. One of the most astounding recent developments in science as it relates to dinosaurs, however, is not that. It is unfossilized dinosaur bones. Intact dinosaur DNA. There's an atheist website called Rational Wiki which made the following prediction a long time ago as they scoffed at the Bible. They said, if fossils of the dinosaurs were less than 6,000 years old, then detectable fragments of DNA should be present in a sizable portion of dinosaur fossils. Well, someone needs to fill them on the report from the secular journal called Bone, who says these data that I've got up on the screen are the first to support preservation of multiple proteins and present multiple lines of evidence for material consistent with DNA in dinosaurs. There's long been evidence of dinosaurs and man living alongside each other, footprints, etc. And this discovery of dinosaur protein and DNA directly contradicts what's become an almost religious belief that dinosaurs are millions of years old. And what about the age of the earth and the universe? For quite some time, secular media, schools, and universities have successfully sold to the public that the earth and universe are billions of years old. They state it like they went to, their, to the beginning and saw it. That's how sure they are. But many of us have never heard about the overwhelming contradictory evidence. The text in Genesis chapter 1 and the genealogies in the Bible portray a 6 to 10,000 year old earth and universe if you take it literally. Because, but because many Christians simply assume that the established long ages are true, they have in fact compromised the text in Genesis by claiming it allows for millions of years. And there's many theories on that we could go over. It's an interesting study. But um, I believe that the Bible... I've said it before, to allegorize the Bible is a dangerous thing. There are parts of the Bible that are allegory, that are metaphorical, that are symbolic. But as a rule of thumb, we should approach it as a literal, grammatical, historical account of things. And I think Genesis is no exception to that. 
There are unbiased experts in the Hebrew language who have no stake in this debate. They insist that Genesis was written as a, a uh, literal historical account and not as allegory or poetry. Now, what that means to you is that people who specialize in Hebrew is their language. They know it from top to bottom. They're saying that, no, the way this is written, this was meant to be read literally. In fact, over 95% of chronometers that can be used to estimate the age of the earth in the universe actually contradict long ages. This includes chronometers like the mitochondrial clock, dated to, uh, which dated Eve to 6,000 years ago. And what I have on the screen is the comprehensive helium in zircon multi-year experiment that also dated the earth to approximately 6,000 years. And then there's the fact that radiocarbon, or C14, that everybody uses to, to create the dates, it's found everywhere it's not supposed to be, including in diamonds, which are the hardest substance known, and hence are very likely to get contaminated. And something significant about C14 is it has a relatively short life. Its half-life life is uh, 5,730 years. So what that means is that we shouldn't find it in anything older than 50,000 years, but diamonds are supposedly, we're told, one to three billion years old. So why do we detect 10 times more C14 than we should expect? What about the Earth's shape? People who say, people who believe in the Bible are flat earthers. Many skeptics say that the Bible, in fact, says the Earth is flat. Well, this could not be any further from the truth. Let me show you. First of all, note that there is not a single passage in the Bible that plainly states the Earth is flat. But before the ancients declared that the earth was spherical, Isaiah wrote, It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, Isaiah 40, verse 22. In addition, from Job 26, verse 7, he stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. Did you know that just last century, scientists believed space consisted of a hypothetical substance called ether? We're not talking about the chemical. It's hypothetical. And while Isaiah was out here declaring that the earth was round and that the universe has planets suspended in it, the rest of the pagans at that time believed in such things as a mythical atlas character who uh, supported the pillars that held the heaven and the earth apart and carried the earth around on his shoulders. Meanwhile, in Job 26 verse 7, we see something really interesting. Remember I read that verse he stretches out the north over empty space. Did you know that scientists have found a huge hole in space in the direction of the northern hemisphere? That empty space that God stretches out over. And this is in Job, the oldest book in the Bible. Next you have the hydrologic cycle. The circulation and conservation of Earth's water is called the hydrologic cycle. And it's accurately portrayed in several passages of the Bible. But by scientists' view, this is all new information. Listen to the following. He draws up the water vapor and then distills it into rain. The rain pours down from the clouds and everyone benefits. That's Job again, 36, verses 27 through 28. Centuries after the book of Job was written, you have Aristotle, considered to be a wise man, a scientist. He demonstrated only a vague understanding of this concept because while he recognized that rain came from the clouds, he incorrectly postulated that the air was changing into water and then water changed back into air. That's incorrect. It, it's also only been recently learned that most clouds are formed by ocean 
evaporation. But again, the Bible already had that right centuries ago. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 7. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea where it evaporates. The complex nature of how water is supported in the clouds, despite being heavier than air, is clearly implied in the question of Job 37 verse 16, where Job is asked, do you know how the clouds are balanced, these wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? Look at this. This is a little bit beyond my pay grade because I'm not a mathematician, but the value of pi. This is interesting. There's one verse in the Bible that talks about it contains a circumference and diameter. It's 1 Kings 7.23. The Hebrew word that's used for circumference there contains an extra character at the end that can only add value to the word by applying gematria. Now, gematria is the practice of assigning a numerical value to a name, word, or phrase according to an alphanumeric cipher. In Hebrew, every letter also represents a number. When you take the ratio of the added character to the value of the original word, the value of pi is achieved within four decimal places. That should be impossible, and yet it's not. Ocean currents. Did you know that scientists have only recently discovered springs of water in the depths of the ocean? Perhaps this is what the Bible is referring to in Job 38.16, where God asked him, Have you explored the springs from which the seas come? Have you explored their depths? Bible, in the oldest book we have, is talking about the springs in the ocean. We know that they had to be there because in Genesis and the flood account, it tells us that they are. But it took a long time for the world and the scientists to catch up and see it for, by, with their own eyes. Researchers at, at NASA's Ames Research Center confirm that every element in man, in your body, can be found in the soil, which prompted one of their scientists to say, you know, the biblical scenario for the creation of life turns out to not be too far off the mark. Isn't that interesting? What about the gravitational properties of constellations? God asked Job, can you direct the movement of the stars, binding the cluster of Pleiades, or loosening the cords of Orion? That's Job 38, verse 31. In the last century, astrophysicists <clears throat> have discovered that the stars of Pleiades move in unison with one another because they're gravitationally bound to one another. They've also discovered that the stars in the belt of, the, of Orion are free agents, and they are not gravitationally bound. And interesting, interestingly, the three stars that comprise Orion's belt appear to be closer together than the outer stars in the constellation, but they're actually further apart. They appear closer together because of the 2D plane from which we view them. Job has a whole lot of interesting information, doesn't he? What about the vast number of stars in the universe? If you go to Genesis 15, 5, Jeremiah 33, verse 23, Hebrews 11, verse 12, you can read that the stars cannot be numbered. Now you may say, well, there's a big number of them. We can't count them, but they could be. Now the Bible says they cannot be. Before the invention of the telescope in 1608, scientists throughout history, including the famous astronomer Ptolemy from 150 AD, taught that the total number of stars in the heavens was under 3,000. Now, on a clear night, with the naked eye, if you go out and you stare up at the stars, you cannot count more than 1,000 stars. <clears throat> but
But we now know that there are countless billions upon billions of stars in the universe, just as God revealed to us thousands of years ago in the Bible. <clears throat> what about Noah's Ark? You know, we have precise dimensions that are allegorical, supposedly, for Noah's Ark. The, Noah, the dimensions of Noah's Ark as described in the Bible are, turn out to be ideal for stability. In fact, South Korean architects who examined the dimensions found that the boat was virtually impossible to capsize. It was an engineering masterpiece. Their modeling and analysis found that the Ark could survive waves higher than 30 meters. Now take note that your normal tsunami, the giant waves, they're normally no more than 10 meters high. The ark could survive 30 meters. Many other cultures also have flood legends that are similar to the account in the Bible, but their ark descriptions just are never possible. For example, you see up here the Babylonian Gilgamesh flood legend ark. It was shaped like a cube. This thing, I saw a video, it was hilarious one time. It showed what would happen with this square thing in the water. Imagine animals and people and food in it. And this thing's just tumbling over and over and over. I wouldn't want to be riding in that. <laughs> I think it'd defeat the purpose. Of I would have rather died in the flood than have that happen. It's just not realistic. These are people that caught on to stories of the past, didn't have all the details, and they augmented themselves for their own, their own reasons. But the real story, the story that fits science, is right there in your Bible in Genesis. And what about that global flood? Psalms 104, verse 6 you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountain. You know, sea life appears on every mountain range across the whole globe. You can go find seashells in the gravel in your driveway at your house. Many roads cut across the country have seashells. It doesn't matter where you go. Now, here's the interesting thing about that. Those shells are almost always in the closed position. Now, when you pick a seashell up off the beach and it's in its closed position, that means it's still alive. That's why when you take it back to your hotel room, throw it in the sink to rinse it off, everything starts to stink after a while because the thing dies and then it opens up. If a clam dies, its shell opens. So what this tells us is that all of the sea life all over the globe, up on mountains and whatnot where it's closed, it had to go there alive. It had to get there rapidly. The best explanation for that is that these seashells had a swift ascent through the great flood, through the fountains of the deep being opened up and pushed them up there. Genetics also provides a very strong scientific case for the Bible. I just find this fascinating. There's strong evidence from genetics that shows all humans trace back to the genetic bottleneck that resulted from Noah's flood. The Y chromosome is found only in males. Now I know this is breaking news for our society today. You can't figure this out anymore. The Y chromosome is only in men. It's only passed down from fathers to sons. That's it. The scientific community confirms that all males trace back to a genetic bottleneck in history referred to as Y chromosomal Adam. Scientists also confirm that there is little variation in that chromosome worldwide, which fits the fact that there would have been only one Y chromosome on the ark, Noah and his three sons. And they likely would have had little manipulation, or mutation rather, in a pre-flood era because lifespans were 900 years. Now in addition to that, secular scientists have also unwittingly confirmed the number of women on the ark by finding three main X chromosomes, which are what women have, 
L-M and M, or L-M and N, and some curious sublineages with extreme diversity limited only to Africa. Now, why does that fit the Bible? Well, the X chromosome is only passed down from mother to daughter, and on the ark there were four women, Noah's wife and three daughters. Now, we would expect, therefore, that there would be three lineages of X chromosomes for the daughters and possibly a fourth lineage if Noah's wife had another daughter, which apparently, based on scientific evidence, she must have had. There's finally a report in the journal Science that puts the age of mitochondrial Eve at 6,000 years. All evidence points to a young Earth that matches precisely a literal interpretation of the historical accounts and the genealogies found in the Bible. I want to close by talking about the invisible attributes. Romans 1 verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. In the above Romans passage, Paul appeals to creation as evidence for God in the Bible. The evidence from creation is so overwhelming from every scientific discipline that it would really take volumes to cover it all. Paul finishes Romans 1 verse 20 by unequivocally stating that skeptics are without excuse. A great example from nature is how an octopus can so easily and quickly change its size, its color, and its texture to match its surroundings. Now, anyone who thinks that such a creature is the result of natural processes is indeed without excuse. And if you find it difficult to believe Revelation as we begin to study it, just remember the entirety of the Bible is accurate. It has been proven time and time again, and the majority of it is literal, although some is symbolic. So we're going to see some pretty interesting things in Revelation, and they beg our belief a few times. But you need to remember this study tonight. There is so much proof that it is accurate that we would be very foolish to say, well, does it make sense to me? I'm just going to skip this book. That would be a mistake. So tonight, we covered some of the background for Revelation. We addressed the historical uh, concerns of whether or not Revelation, by extension, the Word of God as a whole, can be trusted. It can. I presented to you multiple archaeological and scientific proofs concerning, con, uh, confirming that the Word of God has always been ahead of its time, and time only serves to further cement the truth of its pages. You can trust in the inerrancy and accuracy of the Bible. And as we move forward in our studying Revelation, I hope this excites you and encourages you to really delve into the book, for it's a book of hope. And it points directly to the imminent and powerful return of Christ. And brothers and sisters, you want to know about that. We don't want to be caught unaware. Revelation is going to give us much insight into that glorious return. Uh, if there is anybody here tonight who uh, has not submitted to the waters of baptism and professed Jesus as your Savior, there's no better moment than now to do so. And if there is anyone present who needs the prayers of the church, we would ask you to step forward as we stand and sing the invitation song. We hope you have enjoyed this message recorded at Highway 71 Church of Christ. If you have questions concerning this message or would like to set up a study, please call 479 647-2658. May God bless you.